0: In commercial real estate, there are stories of failure, stories of success, and everything in between. Dallas-Fort Worth is no stranger to these stories. From the NAOP North Texas chapter, this is the Real Estate Junkies podcast. So today on the podcast, we talk with Craig Hall of of Hall Wineries, Hall Financial, um, really just a, a number of different businesses. And you know we'll get into that obviously of, of kind of what you've done over the, the history of your career but um man you, you've been wildly successful here in in texas and just really across the u.s and um just appreciate the, the time to get to talk to you today
1: my pleasure good to be with you
0: so so take me back a little bit so you're a uh you're you're a guy from from michigan right i think you you grew up uh kind of a suburb around detroit is that right
1: grew up actually in ann arbor which is um uh, uh, Big blue. About, yeah, exactly. University of Michigan town. It's, it's 45 minutes or an hour from Detroit. Yeah.
0: What was that like growing up in a college town? I mean, does, I, I know you wound up going to Michigan, but that was that kind of always in the
1: cards? Well, I was lucky to get in, uh, and I, I didn't end up graduating, but I did, uh, go to Michigan for a while. Uh, it was a great, great town to grow up in. Uh, I think I love the Midwest values. I love, uh, being from there yep. but i'm awful glad to be in dallas and yeah. I'm, I'm through and through a uh, texan at heart yeah land of opportunity i'm from missouri uh, so i'm with you i got here when i was oh gosh
0: i think i was eight and uh like you said i mean there's just so much opportunity here right um really limitless to to people that will, will go get it uh, put their nose down and make relationships
1: not not to mention uh, other than uh, occasionally we don't really have too much snow and ice
0: <laughs> yeah yeah that's very true except for the big ice storm and I guess that's right just
1: just had one a few
0: days ago golly it's crazy well well, what was growing up like I know you are an entrepreneur
1: at at heart I mean how did how did that get instilled in you from a young age you know I I I don't really know I've thought about as entrepreneurship um, uh, acquired uh, through genetics biological or is it a social thing that you pick up and Maybe it's a little of all of the above, but in my case, um, I, my parents were not uh, entrepreneurial, um, and um, uh, but at, at a young age, I think lots of kids get into paper routes and yep. all those kind of things. So I did a lot of that stuff, and and uh, uh, for whatever reason, I always uh, was willing to sacrifice short-term uh, gratification for longer-term goals, and. Yeah you know my brother would make a little money and he'd spend a lot yeah. of money i would make a little money and save it yeah and you ultimately put it away right i think i think everybody
0: seemingly that knows you to some degree uh knows the story about you saving a lot of money ultimately four thousand dollars i think is was the number and um was this when you were at michigan
1: no no that was actually um uh from age eight to age uh, 17 um doing various uh jobs and by today's standards, that was a long time ago. That's significantly more money yeah. in, with inflation. Um, and then, thirty thousand dollars, something. I mean, probably yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah, I don't know. It, when I was um, seventeen, I decided to buy a rooming house, and I spent over a year. Uh, one poor broker. She. She. I don't know why would. It, why would you believe in a kid that tells you that you want to buy a, a rooming house? And yeah. she spent all this time driving me around. I'm sure her commission barely paid for the gas. But oh, yeah. but anyway, um, so when I uh, just was turning 18, I bought a rooming house with, used that, used my entire savings as the down payment. Yeah. And um, the uh, seller financed it because, uh, uh, you know, a bank wouldn't finance it. That's me. what I was going to ask you yeah. about. Who lent, yeah. who
0: lent you the money? That makes sense.
1: Yeah. Wow. So in Michigan, they had a thing. It's called Land Contracts. And I don't know today, but at that time, a lot of people did purchase and, and sales that way. Yeah.
0: So your your first rent house, and I'm sure it was just, just this beautiful house, right? Oh, and just fanta- a prime location.
1: Fantastic <laughs> and easy to run, you know. Yeah. Uh, and being uh, in charge of... So the, the, the top two floors had eight rooms um, and um, one bathroom and one kitchen. Ooh. And we had... Um, I don't mean to probably didn't have women in there uh no it was all guys oh yeah and 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 it was uh i don't mean to demean different countries for different types of cuisine but let me say it was like the international smorgasbord (laughs) there and it always smelled i mean the hallway smelled it was just awful and of course i was the cleaner of the bathroom and the kitchen and uh it's your management fee yeah i had to go over there every day and uh it was uh it was not great fun but, I guess it was great fun in some ways. Yeah,
0: it, it, you cut, it sounds like you cut your teeth in really every role as a landlord, and and probably at that age, just from from knowing you a little bit, um, you're saving costs on the cleaning,
1: right? I mean, you're, you're you're pocketing what you'd pay somebody else. Well, I I was I wouldn't have had anything to pay anyone, and <laughs> I wasn't pocketing much either. Yeah, everything went to that uh, down it, payment. It, no, it uh, you know the took a long time to realize that uh, the first several buildings um cash flow uh cash flow was always a negative it didn't it didn't didn't seem to uh, what what looks like it's going to work on paper doesn't always work in reality
0: how were you finding tenants
1: at that young of an age um friends no just um each so the, the first house i had was uh you put up notices in the student union flyers which, and things. flyers and things and it wasn't that far uh, away from the student union um it was on the university of michigan campus and f- from that one i bought a number of others and um but uh it was it was no uh, walk in the park it yeah. was a hard hard business uh, but fun
0: yeah and, and from from what i've read it seems like that first property i think i read it was twenty seven thousand dollars in total, and a few years later, which is kind of funny, you had a three year hold, much much like a lot of the apartments that are around today. Uh, what'd you wind up selling that for? Remember forty
1: nine forty nine thousand and I think five hundred dollars. Incredible. Yeah, well, it sounds sounds good, but uh, well, I guess it was good. <laughs> well, your equity but, multiple yeah. on that is incredible, right? In yeah. Three year hold, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, it didn't it. it uh, was always better to sell i was uh, i never made any money owning any of those kind of properties yeah it's, lease it up and flip it that's uh, probably i didn't intentionally do that but that's probably a good program <laughs> yeah
0: so so what was that feeling like i mean selling your first building did that you know and I, I, i've i've heard a little bit about kind of your your career choice of wanting to Uh, in the beginning wanted to be a social worker and it sounds to me like you kind of stumbled into this to some degree. But, um, but after that first deal, I mean, did you get a taste of what owning real estate was like? And you just said, man, this is, this is a great business. This is something that may be sustainable and I can make some good money in.
1: It wasn't about the money. And um, even with all the um, uh, bathroom cleaning and kitchen cleaning, it was fun yeah and um uh it was uh i got addicted to uh, uh being an entrepreneur and and uh, um i believe then and i still believe that that uh business can be a a way of doing good things for society and other people as well as uh it has the benefits of you know it does create a nice lifestyle uh, but but early on and certainly throughout a lot of my career, um, any money I made by selling something like that uh, first house uh, was quickly used uh, to pay pay bills that I had yeah. stacked up. Uh, I used to, um, in the early, early days, um, I literally had an accounting uh, program which was kind of a cigar box and I'd save bills until I could somehow have an event like selling a house and get a little bit of money and then I figure out who was screaming the most and (laughs) go pay pay those and and, uh you know it wasn't uh uh get rich quick uh go take big vacations and uh buy bigger boats or cars yeah you know that that comes much later the winery comes (laughs) later yeah Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that and that comes later (laughs) in life
0: yeah yeah, it sounds like man, you you, you really grind uh, from, a, from a you grind it. I don't know the word I'm looking for, but from a yearly early age, and, and to your point, um, you know, after that first deal, what I've I've seen is is really you were syndicating these deals, getting more investors into other rent houses. Is that right? I mean, how were you? I mean, yeah, talked a little bit about that.
1: Well, and short time after um, buying my first rooming house, I decided. It was fun, and I thought I'd look around for a second one. I found a second place, and it was a $3,000 or $3,500 down payment, and, of course, I had no money. Uh, so I went around to students at the University of Michigan, and I said I'm going to charge $200 for each partnership interest, and you can become a partner. And... Um, I went on to do that for a number of buildings. I bought a lot of different houses, uh, and it, it all worked fine until uh, the Securities Bureau called me one day.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And I didn't know it was a security, and I didn't know you're supposed to have offering materials. What I was going to ask you is how yeah. did you
0: set up the entities and the GP and the LP and?
1: Well, I I've uh, had um, I had at various times I used different lawyers, but they weren't. Um, uh, they, they might have just barely uh, maybe they were still in law school I'm not sure <laughs> they weren't exactly what They're I would do today crossing their teeth. no yeah. they weren't so yeah. good <laughs> so um, my agreements were pretty basic yeah. and um, uh, fortunately in those days I think times have changed today they might have locked me up for any number of uh, securities fraud or whatever yeah. uh, in those days I um, uh, the uh, the guy was the securities director of the securities department in Michigan was named Hugh Makins, and he called me directly and he said you need to get a lawyer and you need to get up to Lansing, Michigan, and you know we we got to talk about this, and I did and I he with his help I we became model citizens and kept doing it but doing it hundred percent proper. And they had a border commission that I ended up on. And I ended up uh, really a model citizen of what to do right. Um, And I just remember back how this guy helped my career do the right thing Mm -hmm. instead of um, getting nasty with me, which he could have. Which is really, I don't know that that happens that often today. I think most regulators are kind of more into tough guy roles and, yeah, and this that's is too way. bad yeah. yeah
0: well just from hearing you say that it kind of sounds like that set the path forward for you to say hey, i'm going to button this up and i'm going to really create a business from
1: this well it, it made me uh understand what the rules were which yeah. i didn't know before and i uh, was quick to want to not just do the minimum but to try to um, step up and 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 comply in, in the best of ways. And, I, you know, um, the regulatory world and the business world have always had a certain tension. Mm-hmm. And uh, over the years, it's interesting to see how things change. Um, but that was a, a real positive experience, and I, I think it's a little more difficult today.
0: Yeah, no, no question. And and, and something that I think is interesting that, that obviously doesn't go on today, but the mid-1970s, late-1970s, there was a huge opportunity for write-offs, for depreciations, or, or essentially tax shelters, right? When did you f- really figure out that, hey, this could be the big part of this business?
1: Um, well, I was doing, I, I graduated from uh, rooming houses to what I called real people housing. <laughs> I, I bought a 24-unit uh, apartment building, Um Maybe in nineteen sixty nine, seventy, um, and um, then I got bigger and bigger places. And along the way, um, a guy came to me who was a tax lawyer. I remember his name, Arthur Clearstein, and he said, um, "You know, let me sit you down, boy. Yeah. <laughs> and let me anyway, tell you where the money is." He 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 explained to me. Uh, how I could do what I was doing much uh, uh, better. And I remember I was, I had, uh, that was when I was 24, and I had bought a property, long story in itself, we don't have enough time. Uh, I had bought a property for $25 million with nothing down, zero, nada. I gave, well, I gave them a $300,000 note, but I wasn't good for the note. So this poor seller was toting my $300,000 note and I bought the property for $25 million. And I was going to syndicate the negative cash flow and the $300,000 note and a few other things. And Arthur said, I showed him the the deal and what my plans were. And he said, you need to put a $600,000 fee in for yourself. I said, what, a fee? I had never charged any fees and didn't know how to do that. And then by the time he got done, uh, for every dollar that a doctor or dentist or high income earner would invest, they would get $3.30 of tax write-off. Incredible. And uh, in some of that time, Tax rates were very high in those days,
0: above fifty percent. They were
1: at one point they were up to seventy percent, and um, you know when you take three point three times your money and write that off at a high tax rate, you know you're making money with every dollar it's you put infinite
0: in. Infinite returns,
1: and um, so people like that, and yeah. they were popular. And over time, I became the largest. Uh, in 1985, we were the largest private placement. Um, Sponsor in the United States that year. That year,
0: incredible. And, yeah. and so, you were making money from upfront fees, selling these tax write-offs, and so really, the purchase price didn't matter too much to your partners, right?
1: No, to the partners, it didn't. And uh, you know, in h- hindsight's an easy thing, but um, in in the um, in the nineteen seventies into very early 80s we lived in a world of constant high levels of inflation and it's, it's a, a lot in, like today i was gonna say it's kind of yeah. interesting to people because of what's going on at, at this moment but it was it was different because it was sustained over a number of years and the whole thought process in real estate was was different but to a fault in hindsight being much easier to a fall in, in dallas being particularly uh an epicenter of this we overbuilt every market we if we had lots of buildings uh, by the mid-1980s in in dallas for instance that we called see-through buildings because they had no tenants but so we built another one next door to the one that was already empty and similarly we we built way too many apartments and at the same time um, because of tax benefits and other things um people continue to do it because they believed inflation would bail out every deal and they believed that the tax benefits would go on forever nobody thought of what happened in 1986 Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know for those reasons real estate was set up to have a huge fall which it it did have eventually but in the 1970s it was a it was a pretty uh into the into 1985 it was a pretty good run for yeah 510 yeah it was it was it was it was good until it wasn't
0: yeah and that was a busy time for you right I mean you you started a to to your point about the entrepreneurial spirit I think you were involved in I, I couldn't even count how many businesses but the ones that I you know I've seen it been the the HMO I think it was Independence Health Plan uh, was the name of it yeah what was the thought of, of getting into that and how did that deal come about
1: so that was actually in the um 1970s and um, a, a friend of mine approached me and uh, there were um, there was a group of people ultimately seven um, uh, people who had worked in the nonprofit health maintenance organization area and for-profit health maintenance organizations were just starting in the United States and mm-hmm. I think we were the second one in the country and um, it's just a kind of a wild story. I put up 100% of the money to start a health maintenance organization. Mm-hmm. Generally, um, I was 28 years old, 27 years old when I did this. And generally, a nonprofit would spend about $2 million to get a license in those days. These seven people agreed to not take a salary and they each got part of the company and I got part of the company. And we organized everything now, how much money do you think we put in total? How much money do you think it took? no didn't nobody got a salary, but we, you know, we got a. And a, and I, and I'm going to admit it to you, I had a picnic table that I, we used, and and so we had we had the chairs and the table, but that's it. Chairs table. How much money do we need
0: to start an HMO?
1: Yeah. I uh, mean, it's. All right. Well, we—I put. You're going to tell me something ridiculous. But I, I mean. put in. I put in a lot of money. I put in $111,000. Okay, I was going to
0: tell you 10 million.
1: Yeah. All right. I put in $111,000, and then a few years later, um, when when uh, by the time I had moved to Dallas, we took it, the company public. Epler, Guerin, Turner, which was a regional stock um, brokerage company in Dallas, uh, in those days, they took the company public, and my shares were worth $64 million. Good Lord. So, hundred thousand yeah, to sixty-four million. Bet. That was probably one of the better deals I've had. Yeah, what's that percent return? Yeah, yeah, incredible. So yeah, nineteen eighty-three. I sold. Yeah.
0: Well, smart. That was a that was a a good bet. Jeez, that's incredible. And it, I think at the time too, it, I don't know how you were juggling your days. I really have no idea because you you know you had this. Um, I don't know if they were racquetball courts or tennis courts, but you had a licensing deal or something with Sports Illustrated. And then you become one of the largest um, court club owners. I'm not sure what the the term is that I'm looking for, but what was that whole ordeal?
1: Well, um, it's a. I'll try to make a long story short. In uh, 1974 or five, I started to build uh, some racquetball clubs, um, and I had built uh, three or four of them. And um, one uh, weekend, a close friend of mine and I were sitting around trying to talk about um, the racquetball business. And frankly, it was more his idea than mine. He said, you ought to, um, uh, first of all, go raise some capital, get a partner. And secondly, you ought to create a brand. Mm -hmm. I called them court clubs. kind of basic sort of thing and um we sat there and we made a list of 75 different corporations that had names that could be cool to Mm -hmm. put with a court club
0: yeah sell the brand essentially
1: and yeah we wanted it was again it was more his idea than mine but it was brilliant on his part um so the number one on the list was uh sports Illustrated, which was uh owned by time incorporated and um you know, and that was the weekend. And uh, Marty, my friend who did this, called um, Monday morning, uh, Time Incorporated. And, you know, so let's see, I'm 24. Marty, he was 27 or eight. much much more mature. Oh, no, yeah. Much smarter. <laughs> Not and, much different
0: in those, in those years.
1: I don't know. He... he, he he was, he was a pretty sharp guy. Uh, anyway, he somehow asked if they have a venture capital department, somehow gets through to the head of their venture capital department, whose name was Hank Luce. And um, the there were two founders of Time Incorporated. One of them was Henry Luce, which was Hank's father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't remember the other one, but but... Um, Hank was on the board of directors. He was the son of the founder of the company, and um, had some pull then. Yeah. Well, he had this little sandbox called venture capital. Anyway, um, Marty says, "Hey," t- tells him the the racquetball story, gets him enthused, and sets up a meeting. And I literally didn't want to spend the money to get an airplane ticket. To fly from Detroit to New York because I thought it was such a ridiculous thing, mm-hmm. and I said, you know, time is not gonna, you give know, give you the time of day. Give us a time yeah, of day, yeah. and and you know, so finally he talked me into to coughing up money for the ticket, and I, you know, uh, I, I remember just looking at this big city when you get out of the cab and go to this big building, and it says, you know, time and the, you know. Uh, it, it was a Time Life building. They, they own mm-hmm. Life magazine, Time magazine. It was like, and ninety days later, they gave us a million dollars for twenty-eight percent of the company, Jeez. and uh, and let us use the name Sports Illustrated. So they were called Sports Illustrated Core Clubs. So we sort of we pretended to be Sports Illustrated. I, I to this day I have a write up that was done in hand by one of their lawyers who couldn't believe they were doing the deal, uh, and uh, a very kind of cute, funny one page thing he wrote on a yellow paper and and signed it uh for time um the the really funny part of the business is that the business didn't work we turned Mm. a a few years later we had 17 or 18 clubs and it was a fad people stopped playing Mm. racquetball they're all losing money and so they put in a million in the beginning and licensed us their name they then came back and we negotiated to get $4.5 million uh, as a severance payment, plus they gave us back their shares oh, wow. if, if we would give them back the name. <laughs> <laughs> and done. <then. laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that was an interesting Gee, interesting experience. Yeah it, worked, yeah. it sort of worked out. And you were a Sports Illustrated uh, employee for a day. Yeah. yeah. No, funny. the good thing was uh, when, when we were partners, uh, I got to go to the Super Bowl in – uh, High style. They always had, uh, oh, i sure, great great Super Bowl tickets and uh, and nice parties. Yeah,
0: yeah. They always have the fame party or, or one of them. I know, I'm sure they'll have it. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's incredible. And so you know, d- with all these businesses, you're um, growing the apartment or the as you mentioned the, the real people housing division quite a bit. Um, I think I've I read something. You raised almost a billion dollars from seven thousand or, or more investors. I mean, how were you getting access to that many investors? Because it's it's different then than it was in the times today, right? I mean, syndication is, is more of a deal. You've got uh, CrowdStreet, and, you know, anybody can get syndicated if you're accredited. How did you approach and, and tap into that market?
1: S- so much similar to today. Um, uh, there were financial planners and licensed uh, broker-dealers, uh, and we... Um, uh, over time became um, a very large private placement sponsor and we, we had in the company, in our company itself uh, we had uh, at the high point about 5,000 employees wow. and we had 72,000 apartments um, so um, it was it was kind of fun yeah,
0: yeah. And, and at what point did you move, did you wind up moving the business to Texas?
1: Uh, we moved the business to Texas kind of in stages between uh, 19... Uh, Eighty, eighty-one. Yeah. Um, we had uh, a, an office in Houston, an office in Dallas uh, from the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we looked around the country. We had offices in Newport uh, Beach in California, and uh, we were the largest owner of property and uh, of apartments in Arizona and in mm-hmm. New Mexico, and we we had apartments all over the country. And from uh, Detroit, it was airplane rides to get to mm-hmm. lots of our offices and lots of our properties. Um, from we considered Atlanta, uh, and fortunately made the decision to come to Dallas. Mm-hmm. We had an office in both places uh, for years, but uh, I feel very lucky to yeah. have come to Dallas.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing what's turned into. And I mean, I think last year we got named best place for commercial development or something by a number of different. Um, you know news outlets and so yeah it's it has been amazing land of opportunity um, you've got wildcatters which you're a little bit of one you're <laughs> yourself um, and I think once you got here um, you bought an oil company or a part of one right I mean it kind of goes in line with with getting into more businesses how did that how did that approach uh,
1: you know I've been actually in and out of the uh, uh, oil business never done really well at it but uh, even back in Michigan I was uh, really yeah so yeah no I the same guy that I was in the racquetball thing with uh, he and I uh, got a picture at my uh, office at my house uh, uh, of our first oil well uh, back in the. so I was in my 20s then oh, yeah. so I've always I've always been interested in that uh, as a uh, uh, gesture to the future and to my kids generation um, uh, as we're sitting here yesterday, um, no, actually, um, uh, two days ago, we, and this is the first time in many, many, many years, uh, we're completely out of, uh, that business. We, we had really? a natural gas company in Fayetteville Shale until two days ago. Yeah. So we wow. just, just sold it. Well, congrats. Uh, well, what? We didn't make money, but it'll give some well, us. It. <laughs> <laughs> go, yeah. It's going to be good us. We're out. out. We're out. <laughs> out. Yeah. Well, very cool. And so, something that
0: you mentioned that I want to go back on um, is, is 1986. And a lot happened for those that don't know about the real estate um, tax shelter laws and how they changed they moved away from the declining depreciation schedules that were so favorable for us, right? And I think it went to more of a straight line depreciation. They changed the length uh, of time in which it took to write it off. And so those things kind of went away, didn't they?
1: Those went away and a whole lot of other fundamental changes. It was kind of uh, odd because uh, in 1985, uh, the House uh, passed a uh, tax law which we thought Okay, here's what the Democrats are doing. This is the worst thing that'll happen to us because you know the House, in that case, led the tax bill, and then the Senate had to pass its version, mm-hmm. and then they get together and, uh, uh, you know, come come up with a final bill. And um, at the end of 1985, we thought, wow, we really dodged a bullet because now, whatever tax change the Republicans will make it, less. impactful than what the the Democrats did. But the truth is, uh, Senator Bob Packwood, who was in charge of the Senate Finance Committee, over a weekend, um, in a strange situation, just sort of cut some deals in a smoke-filled room, so to speak, and uh, then a tax bill was voted on that retroactively changed tax laws and um, fundamentally just totally uh, uh, unfair in terms of the retroactive aspect and really harmful to the country, harmful to the banking system, harmful to lots of individuals. But, but frankly, real estate would have been in trouble anyway. It was in trouble earlier. In, in hindsight, um, uh, we were going from inflation to disinflation or deflation yeah. in the early 1980s. At the same time as we were building too many buildings, overbuilding overbuilding everything, we had uh, inflation going down to temporary periods of deflation. Mm. So uh, prices of rent are going down, new buildings are being built that aren't needed, and then insult and injury at the end of 1986 changed the tax law. And it set things in motion for a period where there I would argue that the real estate industry was probably much worse than what I understand in the 1930s. Yeah. So in, in particular, um, areas like uh, Texas, which I think um, in the 1970s when, when people had bumper stickers that said, Freeze a Yankee, some of those Yankees <laughs> remembered. Yeah. And and when uh, they had a chance to uh, give uh, the banking system, it's come up and we lost uh we lost a lot in dallas we lost republic yeah. bank we lost a lot of uh, uh we lost i think in texas every bank except frost that was over a billion dollars i think went away uh, savings and loans you know and that started the whole savings and loan crisis all over the country
0: and people and, and i have not lived through this but i mean people that are younger and as, as in brokerage roles um and asset management and development roles they just haven't seen that right i mean we have kind of seen 2008, 2009, CMBS markets, um, you know, all these sorts of things, but what's interesting is the generation that, that you're in and folks that have lived through this, they've learned a lot from it, right? And they know, hey, this, this cycle doesn't last forever. And that's what I think is interesting about that you, 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 know, you want every single person to understand is something that, that Chuck Anderson mentioned to me. He said, man, you gotta live within your means and know that the end is coming at some point and it's going to cycle back. And and it's just tough hearing stories like that and, and knowing that we haven't seen that before.
1: Yeah, the, you know, that's true. And you do learn a lot from going through um, tough times. And tough times come in lots of different forms and there are cycles in life. But um, I, don't, I don't think we're building up for... A, um in the near term anyway and uh, as i look out at the next say 10 years plus um are we're, we're we're nowhere it's nothing yeah, like we're not heading towards that not at all yeah. not at all in fact um i'm very optimistic about uh things and and i'd say some of the credit um for why things are in pretty good shape goes to the banking system they yeah. uh, you know, getting gotten smarter they, they the regulators I, I you know I wouldn't give bankers that much credit uh, with, with due respect to all my friends who might you might you like hear bankers. this yeah, yeah but but the the truth is regulators are much tougher today than they were in the 1980s and mm-hmm. the 1970s and the um, things that banks are allowed to do has changed dramatically uh, but it's a working system now and banks uh, now we have which would be an interesting cuz we're in this area but we have a lot of private lenders mm-hmm. that are more um, aggressive than banks but still nothing like the 1980s we had a lot of you could get loans that were 100 105 110% of the cost uh, on, on an asset in those days Dude. you put when i say that you so you put fees and other things in and so you get 90% loan but including a whole bunch of uh, the land you paid a dollar for, you're putting it at $2 and hmm. you get a development fee, you get a fee for waking up in the morning. You get you get all kinds of things that today, it just you don't happen. get any of that. Yeah, yeah it just doesn't happen.
0: And, and something, you know, ultimately, I think a few years later, um, just living through that, I'm sure it was tough with vacancies, um, declining assets. I think in, in 1992, you obviously had a lot go on from the standpoint of, of um, you know bankruptcy and, and dealing with that. W- what was that process like, and, and kind of your your strategy with that?
1: Well, it's not so much strategy. In in um, uh, well, first of all, back to 1986. From uh, in 1986, we controlled maybe somewhere around 750, 800 uh, partnerships. Yeah. And um, I remember thinking, I will never bankrupt a partnership or a company I own. It's just, It just felt like the wrong thing to do. It's sort of the Midwest values thing. Mm-hmm. And then <coughs> you realize that uh, when you're a fiduciary and you owe uh, obligations to investors, you should do whatever is legal to preserve their assets. So ultimately we uh, used Chapter 11 bankruptcy on a lot of partnerships over a number of years. Mm. Uh, Never bankrupted any corporation that I own uh, and had no intention of ever bankrupting myself. In 1986 I owed uh, about two and a half billion dollars collectively, which by today's standards, would be a lot, it would be real money. Yeah. But, but in those days, um, anyway, doesn't seem like that much money now. <laughs> but but two and a half billion, maybe a little more than that. But personal liability, meaning that I, you know, most of that was non recourse, mm-hmm. meaning that it's a debt, but it's not a debt that you can be sued for individually. I had 190 million dollars of personal liability debts. By 1992, I had only 30 million of personal liability debts. All my lenders, not all. The vast portion of our lenders um, were working with us and in a very positive manner. Lowering rates, extending time um, horizons, yeah, or yeah. doing various types of things, yeah. uh, which frankly we just did with a bunch of borrowers. We're now lenders. During COVID, you do things mm-hmm. when there's a, a, an unusual crisis. You try to work with. Uh, as a lender, we try to work with our borrowers. Anyway, in those days, what what I ended up in personal bankruptcy in, in 1992, and that was not caused by my debts. Uh, it was caused by the uh, uh, RTC, the Resolution Trust Corporation. 1991, uh, Congress passed a law called FARIA. It gave um, uh, the RTC a power to seize control to anyone you would accuse of creating an SNL loss. This was a a time of hysteria almost Hmm. in the country over SNLs because in big, big front-page news, we had a savings and loan crisis. uh, And um, I owned a savings loan that was taken over by the government. So I was accused of a savings and loan loss. And as part of that, uh, on April 2nd, Uh, 1992 they went in ex parte meaning without informing me or my Mm -hmm. lawyers to a federal judge in Dallas and uh, sought to take control of all my partnerships and all my corporations uh, and then sue me and then five six years ten years later when the lawsuits are finished uh, decide whether or not um, uh, they were right or wrong and oops, if they're wrong in whatever they sue me for, they have to give me back all those assets. But you tell me how the government will have run those for, yeah, no kidding. Uh, you know, the government would be have a been 30%, a general yeah. partner. So, yeah. um, for, stay, stay yeah. yeah. so they went in to a federal judge in Dallas at 445 in the afternoon, they being, I don't know, seven, eight lawyers for the government. And um, the judge refused to sign the order. And he said, uh, uh, I know who Craig Hall is, and they, he asked him if they had informed us, and they said they hadn't, and they didn't need to, and that wasn't the law. Mm. And uh, anyway, he fortunately said, um, I'm not signing this this afternoon. I'll consider it in the morning, but I want you to inform Mr. Hall and his lawyers uh, today, Yeah. and I want them to have an opportunity to be in here tomorrow morning when I have a hearing to consider it again. And so they did call my lawyers and, um, um, uh, that night, uh, I had a, a number of lawyers till very late in the morning and I signed blank. In those days today, I think you can file a bankruptcy uh, online, but in those days they didn't <laughs> have like online. a mortgage. Yeah. So I filed, <laughs> I signed blank papers to file, um, personally because that was the only way i would have a chance mm-hmm. at keeping control uh and blocking the uh the actions under the okay. three and it worked i ended up keeping control i ended up negotiating um a resolution with the rtc and um uh when i came out of chapter 11 i was pretty bruised from a PR standpoint and uh, emotionally, it wasn't fun. It's was one of the yeah. toughest things I have ever done. Uh, but I, I didn't lose my assets. I just went through this horrible legal mess, and it was wasteful and expensive. And yeah. but anyway, the guy who actually filed that for me and so on, um, he actually offices uh, here. He's a close friend, and uh, you know all the people. I've, I've got a lot of people who. Um, have helped me at different times in my life and I'm blessed to s- still have them as close yeah, friends. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. When you said the judge, he said, ah, I'm going to give him, give him a few hours. The first thing that caught in my mind was "Man, I, I bet you, you bought him dinner uh, a <laughs> couple of those days. Yeah. Um, so, so right after that, I think I've seen that you came out with almost half a billion dollars in, in terms of assets and you know, a couple of years getting back on your feet. Um, you bought a couple towers here in Dallas, was that right, for for sixty million dollars? Um, and then three years later, I mean, you're, you're you're back at it again, just like the rent houses, right?
1: Yeah, actually, I you know downtown Dallas is a complicated thing in the sense that we we have kind of the uptown market, which in those days was very modest compared to today. We have Ross, and then we have South of Ross. Uh, I bought uh, Saint Paul Place, which is on Ross and then, uh, um, can't remember the name of the, uh, Olympian York building, uh, but bought a second building. And I, I, I don't tend to sell things in the short run. I'm not a flipper. I'm a long-term player, but I felt like I was wrong in my thesis. I thought downtown was going to come back, Mm -hmm. but I think it's just for a lot of reasons. Um, and i'm even more pessimistic today than i was over time a lot of the buildings built in the 80s uh higher taller south of ross type buildings mm. um have real economic obsolescence and and absolutely and people just uh, don't want to move their company there and and that was true even in the 1990s um so i decided to sell and fortunately uh you know new york exuberance uh well New York investor came along and said, you know I mean it seemed cheap so we sold we paid sixty million and we sold for like a hundred and ten or hundred twenty million and you know but they they didn't do so well on it yeah, <laughs> yeah. which is unfortunate but but it's just um you know.
0: But, it, but again, it, at that time, I mean, you came out of it, and you, you've gotten an immediate success. Um, and, and something that you mentioned as well as playing the long-term game. Um, I, I know a little bit about your wife, Kathy, and mm. know that she's kind of had this uh, winemaking background, if you will. And so around that same time, uh, going back to the long game, you guys purchased some of the, the acreage in St. Helena, right? In uh,
1: 1995, we bought um, okay. property in Rutherford, which is the middle of... Um, uh, Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, the St. Helena kind of main winery we bought, gosh, I don't remember which year, but a number of years later, uh, we now have an, a lot of different, uh, vineyard properties all over Napa Sonoma and, uh, into different areas. Um, and kind of a, we have three different wine brands yeah. now. and kind of and Robust.
0: I read that. And I read that she just wanted this small little winery, and just probably some some family yeah. labels. And, and I, knowing you, that you were
1: like, "Yeah, let's do that." Right? No, I did. I, yeah, I, I I just that was the plan. <laughs> yeah. And and, and uh, um, then I didn't understand how tough a bad a business it yeah, is. But yeah, then I kept buying everything, you know, and uh, there we are.
0: Yeah. And, and something you know, I, I personally have had some experience of you know not to your degree with Napa and that whole region, but looking at doing something in Texas and there's a lot of really great people that seemingly offered help and advice of starting and, and resources and all that sort of thing did you find that with that property
1: um, or did you or was, were you just cutting your teeth on your own it it, um, it was such a it, I think the wine business today is not as much so as it was then but it's it was very uh, collegial and uh, people weren't really looking at being competitors within napa valley they were looking at were competing with france mm, it's a rising tide for the, for the region a, absolutely yeah. and uh, bob and Dobby, um and margaret uh his wife became really good friends of ours i remember one of the first uh, company parties we we're having and we got maybe 15 employees and um bob and margaret came um and they brought their little dog um <laughs> they we're at every Christmas party we did. Um, they, but they were the uh, king and queen of Napa Valley, yeah. and yeah. and they really uh, took us under their wing and 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 helped uh, helped us learn a little bit about wine and a whole lot about life and enjoying it. And,
0: yeah, and it's worked
1: out. Yeah, but I remember going to their house one night for dinner with uh, was, believe it or not, it was kind of like it was in. Dallas a few days ago uh, was icy and cold and mm. and their house was way up on top of a hill and um turned out we were the only ones that that uh, that made it that night and uh Bob was up in years at that time and he was kind of all dressed in metal and so on and the, as Bob was really aging um, Margaret was just kept pushing him to even when he was in a wheelchair and he would come to things at our house he was uh, he was just until the last breath he was just always Mm. out there really great people yeah that's cool
0: i we still i think we have some some of their wine in our cooler right now it's they've created a very lasting brand as well
1: of course yeah
0: yeah and so i just i want to personally know so you guys have the art and we'll get onto that a little bit the bunny it's it's iconic for y'all and i know that probably came later with the the winery and the expansion what's the story behind the bunny
1: well you're not gonna find this uh deeper and lightning, I was uh, going through Sacramento Airport uh, one day, and uh, there's this part of the terminal that is multiple stories, and hanging from the ceiling, but as the escalators go by, is this huge bunny, and I found out uh, who uh, did the bunny. His name is Lawrence Argent, uh, unfortunately, he's passed away, but I contacted him. I told him I wanted to do a bunny because hmm. Kathy, my wife, used to always sing to the kids, a "Little Bunny Foo Foo," mm-hmm. coming out of the hopping out of the vineyard, and I just thought it would be a fun thing for our hmm. our uh, property to have a a bunny. And uh, Lawrence said he didn't do two of any one thing, and he had done his bunny world, and so it took a while to. Get to know each other and he's he became a great friend uh, um um and he did the bunny and the bunny was made in china brought over and ships in two big pieces it's 30 35 feet uh, tall and yeah. all stainless steel it's beautiful and yeah totally different than the uh, other bunny he made it but it's like an apple and an orange they're yes. both fruit but very different
0: yeah that's cool one, one of my buddies um here in commercial real estate he was curious about this, of, and I'm I'm kind of curious about it too. Do you ever go to restaurants and you're just, like, hey, recommend me a wine, or do you ever just kind of mess with them, and say, what about this whole wine? Sure, we'll all the they, time. What they say. All have you the ever time. gotten a bad response on that? Fortunately, if I have, <laughs> I don't remember. I have, like, mm.
1: I've developed um, a uh, trait that I don't remember bad things. So okay. if I have, I don't remember it. I like that. But let's let's hope I have it. I like that. That's great. Um, well,
0: it's, you guys have a wonderful wine. It's, it's lovely. I was telling you, Kim Butler introduced me to it personally. And thank you, Kim. I'll go thank her. It's so good. Um, but, but getting back into real estate, um, one of your next big bets, and this was really before the tollway went all the way north into Frisco was your Hall office park and that whole development. What was the decision to to really go that that far north? I mean, was it was it cheap land? I mean, this is before the star. This is before any of that that Collin County growth. What brought you up there?
1: Well, I, I think um, um, wasn't that brilliant or, or uh, hard. Dallas has kind of always grown north, and no. and um, it uh, it wasn't as it became luckier than I may have imagined um, but as part of um, my um, uh, even this was during the dark days of uh, uh survival i would say from 1986 to 1993 were all pretty tough but during that time I put together a fund and bought speculative land plays in mm-hmm all of them we sold profitably but one of them we decided to start hall office park which now is called hall park Mm -hmm. Uh, and we did it because um, we wanted to uh, do something different and and, um, try to make a very high quality uh, office park today we realized a number of years ago and that 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 world had changed Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, so we we had to change her we were gonna be in trouble so yeah
0: and I think at this time too, one of your your dear friends Lucy Billingsley they were doing a similar type deal I think it was the whole Independence Office Park a little bit south of y'all yeah. um, and and I don't know when the tollway started going north but that had to be just a huge boom for that city
1: for the whole development um, the ability to create more buildings yeah but in Lucy's case she has the added benefit that Henry her husband is one of the smartest land guys and he really is he knows land and they bought unbelievably great sites all over uh, this area but Henry is a genius at, at uh, land
0: and you guys wound up building I don't know how many I don't know the exact number of how many buildings are up there but um, was it just so successful that you just continued to build on and really create kind of that that office park where um, you'd have a lot of professionals up there
1: yeah we were building. Um, we didn't build our first building until 1997. Finished it in '98, um, but and it was 100% vacant after we finished it, and nobody came to the uh, yeah. opening. It was a, it was a pretty scary time. But then six months after it was finished, it, it was full, wow. uh, and then we started building almost every year, uh, and we built two and a half million feet, and then, um, I realized that office parks were. Uh, like malls, they were, times were changing, mm-hmm. and then office parks were going to end up being a, a business that was really um, yesterday's news. And I would say that was around 2017, um, 18. Mm-hmm. And we started spending a lot of effort, time, energy, and money uh, again, all before COVID to redesign and rethink ourselves mm-hmm. and um and then covid hit and i'd say covid has taken trends that we already saw and made them yeah. go faster and more yeah. extreme
0: yeah no question and and just kind of on that um you know on that 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 submarket And just kind of staying in that that market, I mean, uh, the whole office park for you guys, I don't know that you ever would have expected that the star would have moved right next door to you guys. I mean, how did that
1: change that whole area? Well, I think um, their um, brand is incredible, and uh, Jerry Jones is a really brilliant guy. Their company is um, attracting um, a lot of positive things. We're, We're certainly... Um, grateful and fortunate to have mm-hmm. them uh, in the neighborhood. Um, we're also grateful in hindsight that um, George Pierfoy, who's just about to retire, he started in Frisco about the same time we were buying property in 1987. I think he's been there about 35 years. I've never met a more selfless, quality, high class. Um, Public uh, servant—I hmm. don't know what—that's a terrible term—but a, a, a public uh, uh, city manager, uh, George is just incredible. Hmm. Um, to this day, I've known him since 1987, and he's the kind of guy he will not call me Craig. I don't know what the deal is. I'm Mister Hall. Mister Hall. Yeah. And and uh, I've only once or twice been out to lunch with him, but you know, either the city's paying for some reason or it's Dutch treat. Nobody that's can cool. ever. You know, there's just no, not a, uh, a questionable bone in the body of this guy. He's just a yeah. great person for that city. Yeah. And that helped us a lot. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's going to be a real transition with him leaving. Uh, but certainly people like Jerry Jones coming. He, he's just terrific, uh, great, great for the area. Yeah,
0: and, and just a common theme that I'm hearing for, from you, and that I've heard from a lot of different folks, is it's it's relationships, right? And the ones that you find that you guys can work together, um, you want to keep long term because yep. it just Absolutely. makes it just makes business so much better.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, to be able to um, trust someone makes a big yeah. difference, and it saves a lot of time and a lot of uh, um, you know. Uh, just wasted uh, uh things life should be about winning deals that work for both sides yeah yeah
0: absolutely and and you know i i know over the years you you've gotten into hold structured finance you have now built uh, the hotel and residences and we're sitting next door to what was your decision to get into the hotel business and the residences
1: i must have been drinking too much or the <laughs> wine or i don't you know it, Dallas is, uh, we're doing uh, okay right now because, you know, in a funny way, COVID uh, was terrible for a high-rise condominium building. In 2020, nobody would come look at them. But in 2021, um, we we uh, sold about $50 million worth of condominiums, wow. and we're super busy right now as, mm-hmm. as we're having this uh, discussion. And... But you know, Dallas is not a high-rise market in general, so mm-hmm. that it's not the easiest thing. But I think it's good for the arts district and good for downtown to have some uh, people of uh, economic um, substance that are living here, yeah. uh, because that means they'll have more uh, interest in uh, supporting on a charitable basis. Uh, organizations in the arts district and that there will be more thought about how our whole downtown works so i think it's good for the city um i think the hotel similarly was important Uh, it's been a really stressful time to open in covid a higher end hotel it's been been uh one of the less fun things i've done in a while (laughs) but uh it'll it'll work out
0: yeah, yeah, to your point, I think when people are here and this is their city, they take ownership, right? I mean, exactly. You're not in a north suburb or out right. far away. You really want to make a
1: difference here. Right. And, and you know, I think more people are – I've, I've talked to – I've gotten some notes from people that have moved into our building about uh, one individual in particular kind of wrote, I never realized how much I'd enjoy high-rise living. Here's what I've done in the last week and gave me sort of a diary <laughs> of, of can I, uh, you know, great. every place they, they – uh, we're able to walk to you know yeah. when you know I, I lived in the park cities for a number of years and it's great but it's not that it, it, there's a nice thing about being in the heart of a city yeah no
0: question and that's the thing kind of to your point the whole walkability mixed use thing i think y- y'all are, are seeing a little bit of that with with your current project we, we
1: we hope to create kind of a uh urban suburban uh mm-hmm. kind of a, a thing like like legacy's done yeah. uh only in frisco and i think it'll be a little bit of us and a little bit of the star we'll have kind of a a a, a, yeah. uh, a regional area there uh i think it'll be uh it'll be fun we're, lo- we're looking for it we're right now under uh we have a million square feet of uh that were a building for building at one time hmm. as well as the park uh
0: and so bringing it into today, so what do those buildings look like that may have been different from buildings
1: that were designed, you know, 10 years ago? Uh, well, we added balconies, uh, which I never would have thought of for mm-hmm. office, but people want are more health conscious. We have, mm-hmm. of course, this great park we're building, similar to Clyde Warren Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the newer buildings, you've got 10-foot ceilings, all glass, um, the most modern HVA. Uh, HVAC that you can have so from a health and wellness standpoint and we're trying to go beyond we're not thinking we're gold lead certified but we we we're the first gold lead certified winery in California we're gold lead certified to me is is becoming a minimal standard we want to look at carbon neutrality and how can we have a pathway to where we can show our tenants that we're going to be carbon neutral we want to be good citizens um, and we want to create environments and places where uh, tenants can say to their young, talented people they're trying to recruit, yeah. we're we're in this great location in Hall Park, mm-hmm. and it's a fun place for you to to work. And you know that's what the whole the future is not about how cheap is my space. It's about how good is my space yeah. for for these relocations we're trying to get yeah. from california a lot of california New York, I was say. a lot of california yeah uh, but we need to have real high quality to give them yeah
0: well that's exciting and and we look for look forward to hearing from you guys and, and seeing what those spaces look like
1: it'll be fun
0: yeah so craig thank you so much for the time and looking forward to, to hearing from more about y'all and kind of what you're doing in the future
1: my pleasure come back anytime
0: we will do thank you i'll see you at napa
1: De- deal